Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. Welcome, I'm Ross Lauder, your host from Single Focus Talent, and I'm joined by our non-exec director, John Quigley, today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So today we are joined by international rugby player Bernard Jackman. Bernard has had a very uh, prestigious and um, uh, career around uh, professional rugby and has now transitioned into the business world. I was keen to catch up with Bernard in relation to how... um, business uh, psychology can lean on sports psychology and what that whole uh, ethos looks like from a psychology perspective. So welcome to today's show, Bernard. Thank you very much. Glad to be on. Uh, In terms of your own career and what has brought you to where you are so far, uh, thus far to date, as it were, maybe could you just walk us through where you've come from and the decisions you've made at each point in your career and and where that's led you, if you would. yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, um, a, I suppose, a, a, a varied um, background. My dad is a cattle dealer from a place called Tullow County, Carlow. So my early stages would have been, you know, at March or calling the farmers with him, um, you know, trying to trying to sell cattle. So sales was always an area that I was passionate about. And when I left school, I uh, I took on a course in DCU, international marketing and Japanese. Um, and marketing for me was the nearest I could get to sales. There was no degrees in sales. So I effectively felt, well, that's going to give me, uh, I suppose, uh, a formal education in, in as close as I possibly can get to, to sales. The Japanese was just a, an add-on. I wanted to have a, a skill set that was more unique than, than German or French or Spanish. So um, I was enjoying that. I did that for two years. I was just about to go to Japan for my third year uh, to do an, a year Erasmus, six months was in college six months and work over there when rugby were professional and uh, Warren Gatland offered me a, a contract he was the coach at Connacht so I deliberated over it and, and um, decided it was too good an opportunity to turn down so uh, I transferred into a course in business studies in DCU and took the contract in, in Connacht and uh, managed to play professionally for 14 years um, but in that in that 14 year period I had a year where I, I failed a medical, so I didn't have a contract for a year. So I went working for a company called AstraZeneca as a pharmaceutical rep while I rehabbed uh, from an operation. And uh, I also, while I was contracted to Connacht, I opened up two retail shops um, in Kildare, uh, two gala franchises, and managed to to build them from being, I suppose, uh, you know, fresh field sites into, into being able to flip them just before the crash in 2005. And... I finished my career in uh, in Leinster, six seasons in Leinster, uh, which is my home province, obviously, and was lucky enough to be part of a um, bit of success in Leinster 2009, winning uh, our first signing cup and part of the Grand Slam for Ireland 2009 under Declan Kidney as well. So uh, I was always fascinated by coaching and uh, my goal was to, was to coach professionally and also potentially coach professionally abroad. I, I missed out. I played two years in Sale Sharks as well in Manchester, but um, I had a few opportunities to go play in France as a player, which I turned down because I was in a very good environment in Leinster. Um, but I definitely had one eye on trying to get to France uh, to coach professionally because I, you know, I had a young family. I had a, uh, a five-year-old uh, 
daughter Ava and a three-year-old son Ben who who I felt you know for us as a family it would have been a great experience to get them to somewhere like France um, while they were young and pick up a language a little bit easier than maybe it was it was going to be for me so um, I got the opportunity to go to Grenoble um, or a small small club in in the French Alps um, east 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 France southeast France and uh, I went there as a defence coach my first year we were in second division in France and thankfully we got promoted and I got to spend five years there um, as a coach ended up two years as head coach and then we wanted the kids to get back to Ireland and we wanted them to, to be Irish to get an Irish education and uh, so we came we came back to Ireland in 2017 but I got an offer to go to, to Wales to coach in the Dragons um, Oren Gatland again would have been instrumental in that and uh, I went there did a year and a half. I commuted back to, to Dublin from, from Newport. And uh, I got sacked from there uh, end of September, end of 2018. Came back to Ireland, um, had a look around corporate world and, and uh, was keen to, to get into sales um, and prove myself in that and give myself, I suppose, another option rather than just be, a, be pigeonholed as a professional coach. Um, with, where the reality is there's only four jobs, five jobs in Ireland really that's, um, would be suitable to me as a head coach, so uh, which means I would have to probably travel, um, you know, quite a bit, and that would wouldn't be ideal for the family. So, had a little look around Dublin, met a few people, and uh, got an opportunity to work with a company called um, Refinitiv as their senior account manager for for Ireland, and just a year now on the first of July, and I've, uh, yeah, I really loved it. It's been it's been great to try and take the the habits and uh, learnings from from pro sport into into a sales career. Well, I mean, I'm very keen to dive into that. Um, it seems to me there's a lot in that to begin with. Um, and it seems that you take on a lot. Um, I mean, you mentioned taking on franchises. You mentioned taking on different sporting challenges. And now you've moved into the corporate, corporate world. Could you maybe just tell us, you know, how do you define your mindset? And when you're making decisions, like what, what do the criteria look like for you? Um. I, my mindset's adaptability. Uh, I want to be, for me, success is proving that I'm adaptable, that I have a, an open mind um, and that I can transfer my my skills um, into other areas. So I'm also act, quite active in media. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm involved with the 42, I'm involved with RT, I work for Premier Sport, um, Air Sport and, and the BBC. So again, that's another area that I, I, I enjoy the challenge of trying to go in and perform well and, and I suppose um, keep my spot there because it's a very competitive uh, industry. There's a lot of pundits, pundits around, a lot of ex-pros who are looking to get into that. So um, yeah, the big thing for me is adaptability, getting an opportunity and then and then delivering. And that's that's what drives me uh, is, to, is a little bit of... I suppose internal satisfaction you get when you've either, you know, you've brought success or, um, or mastered something that you didn't have a strong background in. And and I, and one of the other uh, you know salient kind of aspects I picked up on there from your overview was very much around culture. So I'm keen to explore. You know, you, you obviously did Japanese in college, which I can't imagine a more difficult subject to try and take on. Um, and then you decided, you know what, I'll also move to France as well. Now, obviously, the 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 UKI kind of uh, culture is somewhat um, a little more similar. Obviously, there are nuances and such, but it's a little, a little bit easier to gain an affinity. Like, take me through what it's like when you're landed in a new culture and uh, 
you know, what that kind of shock is like, and then maybe how you translated that to a business challenge, if you would. Yeah, so again, I think, like for me, obviously, I didn't have a, I'm selling financial, I'm in the financial services industry now, selling, um, you know, pretty complex uh, financial products, um, mainly around uh, around data. And, you know, I, it's it was a real stretch for me because, you know, I didn't have a background in that area, either haven't worked um, on the other side in the financial services, haven't worked, you know, in the sales end of it. So it was very similar to me in terms of, you know, going into a new dressing room. So when I went into Leinster, you know, it was obviously full of, full of really high profile players. And um, I hadn't come through the Leinster Academy as such as I said, I've been in Connacht, I've been in Sales Sharks. And there's that feeling of a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, and what I tend to do is I, I tend to, um, you know, just keep my head down for a little while and, and observe, observe the behaviours and, and uh, particularly the leaders in the group and, and see how they do things, see what's, what's accepted or what's, what's the norm and then, and then drive myself to, to deliver that and get credibility, um, you know, through my ability to, to deliver. And, and, you know, that's what happened when I went to France. I didn't have the language in France, so I did German in school, unfortunately. And, you know, so suddenly I was given this opportunity to coach an area of the game, defence, with 16 different nationalities, you know, we, obviously the majority were French, but we had uh, Fijians, Samoans, Tongans, Georgians, Romanians, Kiwis, South Africans. Uh, and, you know, it's very difficult to to deliver a message across so many different, uh, I suppose, different backgrounds in a, in a, in a, in a way that is impactful. So, and particularly when the majority, you know, they want you to deliver in France, in French. So I suppose for me there was, it was about creating slides and, and imagery and, and examples and clips that got my message across um, while I was picking up the language. And then um, it was something probably I picked up from Joe Schmidt. Joe Schmidt went to Claremont um, without any French. And, you know, Joe Schmidt's obviously got an unbelievable rugby brain and would have so much information that he could pass on to players. But because of his lack of French, he, he tried to narrow it down to the, the three most important points for every day and uh, learn how to say that in French and, and then deliver it and, and try and be as consistent as possible around those messages. So, you know, I copied, I copied that, to be honest. And, uh, you know, so I, I worked out for every meeting I had or every pitch session, what were the three most important, important points I wanted to get out of that and, you know, worked with my translator and my, my French teacher to, to learn how to say that in French. Uh, and then obviously just, just stuck to it. And the way it's gone now, that was probably, you know, that was 2011, you know, but I, I'm actively involved now in, 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 in trying to learn around how we take on information in terms of, you know, how we should deliver messaging. And, you know, it, it's kind of gone back to that again, where, you know, there should be three or four big rocks. Um, and that's, that's what you got to focus on. You know, it's the 80, 20 rule. And, and, um, you know, I think that's, that's, I didn't know it at the time, but that is best practice really. And, uh, you know, even when I managed to, become bilingual you know probably in the second year I stuck to that principle and didn't try and I suppose um, overload players with information and just made sure that we we kind of knew what we wanted to get do and, and that was a consistent on a, on a week-to-week basis. So Bernard like all of those are just hallmarks of someone with like an extremely high level of, of, of accountability and unfortunately you know you can't have a company full of Bernard Jackmans that uh, ha- have that level um, of, of drive and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying this uh, with the context that a lot of the time in organizations I find that we assume that we can turn salespeople loose and they'll automatically engage buyers with 
you know, thoughtful conversation that, that include empathy and business acumen. And, you know, that's not something that you learn overnight. So, I mean, from your perspective, putting your leadership hat on now, your coach's hat, how do you enable sellers to have thoughtful, knowledge-based interactions with their buyers? Oh, look, I think it comes down to the prep you do beforehand. And, you know, this would be massive. I mean, we would, you know, as coaches, as a coaching group, we would meet at six o'clock, you know, five mornings a week. And the first players might be in the in the environment at half eight. And our first meeting or presentation might be till half nine. And as a head coach, it's my responsibility to make sure, you know, I'm across, you know, all the key messages that are, are going to be delivered throughout the day. And um, the only way to, to do that is to prep for it and, and discuss it. And I suppose use your the intellectual property in the in the coaching group to to make sure um, that we are, you know, given our, our, our players the best possible um, information in the most concise, clear, um, clear, clear way. And and you do that from from your as I said from your preparation. And, and if it takes you two or three hours um, to be ready for that presentation, well, that's what it takes. If it takes you longer, you know, it takes longer than that because the coaches would would come in the morning at six o'clock, you know, with the first draft um, of of what they wanted to review or preview. And um, you know, I think it's really important that as assistant coaches and as a head coach myself, I mean, I would get feedback from them around what I want to deliver as well. And, and uh, I think that that's, that's really powerful when you have that, I suppose, alignment across the whole organization. And then we would have dropped down a level further into the, into the leadership group um, or, or game management group, which are two different things. And we would have involved them then as well. And sometimes we would have got them to deliver. Um, you know, we would have helped them put together the presentations, but um, we would have got them to deliver. And I think that was that's really powerful when, when you know, players from within a team uh, or individuals from in a team are actually helping deliver the strategy and and, and are involved in, in in what it is. So, um, you know, for salespeople, for me, going to going to try and meet a client, uh, it's about it's about your prep. It's about understanding, you know, what you're 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 selling or or what you're trying to achieve out of that meeting and then doing as much background information on the, the client you're you're about to, to speak to um and that's where obviously you, you tap into your um into your crm or, or whatever or, or your notes from from past meetings or or from speaking to colleagues um and just making sure you're prepared i think if you're prepared well um there's a far better chance of, of delivering it's like you know, it's very similar to, to getting the team ready or a horse ready to run. Um, you know, the better your preparation is, uh, the more likely there's going to be a positive outcome. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. Um, or uh, you know, with with the sporting context around people, you know, making the presentation. Um, you know, uh, to ensure that every, everybody's aligned. I've always had the philosophy that uh, we have at Arsways in 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 sales coaching and enablement, and it's like, what if the first thing that you ever did when someone joins your organization as a salesperson is, is to train them on the market and not on the pitch, yeah. you know, not on the sales pitch or what we do or, you know, to, to actually help them to understand the market that they're operating in, the people that are in that market uh, from a buying perspective and then test people or make them do presentations, as you said, um, to, you know, make that a thing in your sales motion um, to 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 help them make that presentation on just the market, I, I think yeah. that's that's hugely powerful. You know, so I suppose my question is, then it's how do you teach or train people and uh, to 
have the ability to coach that? Like, who coaches the coach? Yeah, I think um, uh, I think we need to focus on uh, rather than actually having a, a generic training uh, manual or, or training style um, or six stages to complete the program. I think we could be a lot more time efficient if we spend you know the first part of it actually understanding what level um, that salesperson or, or that athlete is at or where they're struggling or Very good. where they're Very strong. Good. Um, and like for example, uh, this is so. When I arrived at the Dragons, um, you know, I tried to implement a policy where for every meeting, the players would bring a, a journal with them and uh, uh, that they would take notes, okay? And, uh, you know, it's not rocket science, but um, there was one player who, who I felt was a, was a cultural architect in the group, a guy called Gavin Henson, um, who was quite high profile towards the end of his career, but, you know, had played for the Lions, had played for Wales, um, had played for Saracens, Toulon. And we had a very young group. So he was somebody that the young players looked up to. And I noticed that um, for the first couple of meetings, he didn't bring his notebook, you know. And I'd asked a few times, I said, it's really important to me that people are, have a notebook with them, just show they're ready for the meeting and, and they take notes. And I was getting very frustrated. And I thought he was actually trying to rebel against, against the, the way we were trying to do things. So, you know, I brought him in for, for a chat and I just said, look, Gav, you know, have you an issue with how, how we're trying to develop the group here. And I noticed that you're not bringing your notepad. Um, and he said, look, to be honest, I've tried this over the course of my career and I'm a real perfectionist. So when I'm taking notes, I want the notes to look perfect. And um, I effectively find that I'm spending so much time, uh, I'm absorbed in the, in the neatness and the, uh, the beauty of my notes that I actually missed the next two or three points. Uh, so in my experience, um, I, I'm far better off just sitting there, listening, engaging. And then when I go down to the dressing room, um, you know, I do a little voice recording on my phone. And then when I go home that night, I fill in my notebook. And again, you know, it was just my lack of understanding. In actual fact, he was at a far higher level than everybody else because he really knew how he needed to operate. And, and again, you know, I asked him then to... to to explain that to the group because I'm yeah. sure there's other people in the group who just by having a notebook didn't mean they were engaged. Like for me, the, the point I was trying to get was how important it is we take on information at every meeting. It's absolutely unimportant to me uh, now uh, how people take it on, whether they have their iPhones and, and, they, and they take notes on that or whether they take screenshots. You know, the most important thing is that they're actually learning. And, you know, that there's an example for me that if I had a team of, of, of salespeople you know, I'd rather spend time at the start understanding their background, understanding where they're passionate, understanding where they see their, their strengths and where their weaknesses are um, and try and make their training, I suppose, specific to that rather than, uh, you know, go through a, a, a bog standard manual or, or sales, a sales approach. That, that's what I would, that's what, that's what I operate at the moment because I think, you know, I've, I've, very different strengths and weaknesses than that someone who's been in sales 20 years so for me it's only it's really important that I'm you know focused on making my strengths better but also you know looking to add uh, educate myself and make myself better in my weaknesses but not do a generic waste my time doing a generic six-hour course I think that's um that's very apt and makes complete sense and uh, it's interesting you mentioned Gavin Henson there my kind of standout memory of him was being on the Lions tour and uh New Zealand in 2005 and uh, 
we all had camper vans for hire at that stage, uh, traveling from Auckland down to, to Wellington on the North Island. And uh, the camper van beside us had decided to get electrical tape. And on the side of the uh, camper van, which is all in white with black electrical tape, they had written Gavin Henson's mobile makeup unit. <laughs> I just thought that was just quite, quite, quite creative, quite frankly, you know. Yeah, no, he's a gas man. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't do ice baths because we we put um, we put chlorine in them and uh, effectively took away his fake tan. So he, he actually, he, and in fairness, like he's the most professional player I think I've ever coached. But he'd send us a video every night of him back in his house doing his ice baths with just water, you know, and ice. So um, yeah, he's a he's a look at he, he felt if he if he, if he he played well when he when he looked good, and he felt good. So you know he spent a lot of time grooming, um, and yeah, it worked for him for a long time. Well, I mean that for me brings up some some interesting uh, questions around um, spotting talent and discerning between folks who might be good versus prima donnas. And you talked about developing people there, and there's no playbook that's definitive for anyone uh, or everyone, should I say? And I think that's absolutely clear and correct um, and I'm a big fan of the Ken Blanchard leadership style and um, where they talk about the four different stages d1 to d4 as in don't know so it's unconscious incompetence conscious incompetence conscious competence and then kind of auto autopilot as it were and kind of adapting your your your, uh, your style but I suppose my question around that is you know how do you spot that raw talent, that person who just has that spark, but maybe just doesn't have the kind of structure, the skill, like the, the kind of procedural piece? How do you determine that? Like, what do you do when you look in someone's eyes and you assess them as a personal on that level there, Bernard? Listen, I think um, there's no shortcut to it. I think it takes um, a huge amount of, of background work to... Well, for example, for our game, we'll be looking through tape, you know, looking through tape in leagues that maybe aren't high-profile, looking... Um, for players who maybe showed ability at, at underage level and, and for whatever reason fell fell out of the pathway, um, and this is this is because I suppose my last two jobs I've been working with teams with very low budgets, so you have to try and find a rough diamond, and potentially the guys who are talented but don't don't fit into the character uh, side of it that a lot of teams want. I mean Barcelona, for example, you know they have a, a saying that talent will get you into our dressing room but your attitude will decide how long you stay there. Um, you know, and they can afford to do that. They can afford to, to maybe release a player who, who's very talented but isn't committed to the culture. Whereas, as a, I suppose, for the teams in the bottom end of the league in terms of budget, sometimes you have to take a risk and back yourself to be able to get that player to conform if they've had you know, uh, discipline issues in, in the past. But the only way of doing it is, I think, is through you know, actively searching for for talent and, and as I said in our game it's it's probably watching footage, it's going to games, it's speaking to coaches, it's you know, dealing with a lot of agents and trying to find out. And then when you do find the talent in terms of what your eyes tell you, um, then you have to do a lot of background uh, work in terms of, you know, what's what's his family support like, um, what's his behaviour like, uh, and you know, talk to players he's played with, talk to coaches, talk to physios. Um, and try and get as much background information as you can before you go meet them. You know, I never signed a player without meeting them face-to-face -face, um, at least once, and if, if at all possible, uh, geographically, you know, three times if, if, if I'm in the same country as them. And I think that's really important. I think it's really important for the head of the organisation to, you know, really spell out how you see 
um, how you want the organisation to look and what the culture is currently. And if, if that's in a, in a state of involvement, you know, where you're trying to get to and then, you know, get feedback on, from them as if that is that something that they'd be interested in, you know, because the worst thing you can do is, is not have those conversations early. I think pre, pre, pre-signing, to be honest, um, pre-hire, uh, the more information you know about each other, um, the better, and it just eliminates any any mistakes. So, in terms of um, information, there, I think that for me is a, a an interesting and, and vital topic today. And I've been uh, uh, on record as saying, uh, "In God we trust, but all others bring data." Maybe uh, Bernard, if you could share with us. Um, what data has meant for the modern game in terms of sports um, and what decisions that brings and then how that translates maybe into a business environment and, and, and brings accountability to the table? Yeah, look, I think as coaches, um, we, we, we rely on our good feel, I'd say, um, far less than we rely on the, on the data. And I think we have to, I mean, you have to uh, use data to drive performance, uh, I think. And that starts on a, that starts on a Monday morning when the players come in and you know they do their medical screening and and uh, you're getting information around how actually they recovered from the game on Saturday, what their hydration levels are like, what their mood is like, you know how well they've slept, and then you, you know that'll actually dictate to a certain extent what your Monday looks like and and um, that continues throughout the week and it's all about trying to use whatever reliable data you have um, to help you steer your strategy and obviously if your long term strategy. Um, and then you have your, your medium-term strategy and your short-term strategy, which is generally around, you know, what can we get out of today? You know, how, how can we organize our day in terms of, you know, our time on feet, off feet, on the pitch, in the gym, you know, um, to make sure that we give the players the best possible chance of, of improving. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's, that's it's a gift we have as professional coaches, but the improvement in, in I suppose, in science, sports science at the moment, and I know it's it's evolving all the time. And every every six months, you know, it's getting better either through the through the I suppose services we're currently using being upgraded or or new 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 technology coming on board that um, we are able to be much more specific, uh, scientific around around how we how we organise our training sessions and and um, and help players help players be in optimal condition on a on a Saturday and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 massive, and and you know, so and it's not just the rugby side of it. I mean, obviously, we go into real detail around, you know, what our performance was last weekend, what it's been like year to date, um, in all different aspects. And each coach will have probably three KPIs that you know will give them a, a good indication of of how they're tracking in terms of their area responsibility. Um, yeah, but then it's the other little things I mentioned, like you know, the sleep quality, the the hydration levels, the um, speed at which they can lift a certain weight, you know, in the gym, um, you know, how many meters they ran, how many accelerations, decelerations, um, which can give us really good feedback in terms of, you know, did we hit the numbers we expected to hit in, in a certain training session? And, you know, can we consistently hit those numbers by by reviewing it and, and, and making sure that we get better at, at being consistent in terms of hitting our numbers? So, yeah, there's... There's a lot of different data we can we can take on board, and again, the, you know, the the key question or, or key answer is um, is that we have to make sure it's accurate, you know, and that's that's really important. But once it's accurate, then you know, 
how much knowledge do I have as a head coach around each area. I would say, you know, I need to be an expert on the rugby data, stats and data. Uh, I need to have a general knowledge of, of all the sports science parts. Uh, but I need to trust, you know, trust my sports scientists to be able to be real experts in, in those areas and then to, you know, be able to give me really good feedback and advice. And then I, I factor that in with the rest of the whole, I suppose, staff to, to try and change or our, our continue with the strategy we have. Cool. So, so Bernard, you, you seem like the kind of person from, from speaking to you and what, you, what you've told us that's you know, extremely highly adaptable and, and you, you do well with change, perhaps you even crave or like change. So I'm thinking you're not having too much problems with what's going on in the world today. <laughs> so, but what's your view for, for, for sport? What's your outlook? What's your view for sport and business in terms of this? I'm, I'm not going to say the new normal because it's the new abnormal, if, if the truth be known. But what's, what's your view or outlook for, for sport and business with this new abnormal? It's obviously very, very difficult, very uncertain. But um, the teams and the, and the businesses that... Um, I suppose embrace it, uh, find solutions, um, and and then obviously build processes to exploit those are the ones that are going to be successful. And and you know I, I think that the, the the companies that have been successful for the last you know twenty thirty years you know you know you like to imagine that they they have been successful because they've been built on you know strong principles and foundations and um, you know really good leadership and good management and, and good processes and, and they will. They will be ahead of the curve, or they're already, you know, have exploited, uh, or sorry, spotted areas that they can exploit or continue to to be successful in, and and the same with the sporting teams. I think the, you know, and for sure some some will, will drop off and some won't won't thrive in this environment. But I think that's what you want in your life. You want you want opportunities where you you stand up and and and, and be counted and and make a real difference. And sometimes when um, when things are going really well. It's very hard to actually quantify your impact on on the success, and uh, you know, smooth smooth seas never made a skilled sailor. So um, I I do think that there will be certain people who will be really embracing this difficult moment, as hard as it is, and uh, you know, in two or three years' time, will will go. You know, look at I showed my resilience there, and and I showed my ability to to problem solve, and I showed my ability to to bring people together, and um, you know, to to create success despite you know a difficult climate, and that's uh, you don't always get that, and that's uh, I, I think that's that's fascinating, and um, you know it's a challenge that we need to meet. Yeah, I think it's it's calling people out to to um, really focus on uh, the buyers and customers. I think for a long time, a lot of organisations forgot about. Um, their customers and buyers in terms of that focus and my view is that people who are really good at, a, at account management and relationship building and all of those skills required to build a relationship they're going to do really well yeah hopefully and i mean again it's 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 true being you know having or sorry having empathy having having really kind of good conversations with your with your clients and, and finding out where their stresses are and um where they're where they're going to go and, and obviously then trying to you know, make sure that you, you fit in uh, into that and you help them, help them through this. And I think the companies that can help their, you know, their clients, um, I suppose, survive and thrive in this, you know, that relationship is going to be so strong um, in, in the future because people remember, uh, you remember people who delivered for you when you're under pressure. And, 
I think that's the, you know that I didn't mention that as part of the opportunity, but that is the opportunity, and, and not not just in terms of pure sales, but in terms of just being someone that you know is reliable and uh, consistent, and yeah, doesn't doesn't back off when the when the pressure comes on. I think that that's the kind of people I like in my team. You know, uh, whether they're they're lacking maybe certain areas in terms of the the background or the technical expertise. If they're people who are you know really trustworthy, really reliable. Um, dependable when the pressure comes on. Uh, I think you've enough of those. You you won't be far. You won't go far wrong. I uh, agree with you more. Yeah, I agree. And and I uh, I think you raised an interesting one there around kind of opportunities. And the Chinese believe that uh, with crisis come opportunity, and that it's it's really that mindset, that ability to filter that actually there could be an opportunity inside of that. And uh, rather than sort of saying every. Um, uh, every silver lining has a cloud behind it. It's kind of flipping that on its head and, and really seeing the opportunity. But, you know, rejection is, is an unfortunate reality. And I'm a big believer in that it's not about what happens to you or in your world. It's how you decide to uh, react next and what you do that counts. Maybe could you share with us maybe how you kind of have, you know, maybe had that yourself, overcome it. And then how do you instill that mindset upon other folks to say, look, this is part of the process, guys, is you're going to get knockbacks. Um, what does that look like in a sporting and business context, Bernard? Yeah, I think, look, I think if you asked me what my super strength was, it was, it'd be resilience. Um, I really worked hard on trying to create that mindset where, um, you know, I, I don't see defeat or uh, a rejection as, as the end point. And, you know, from a sporting point of view, I, I was dropped an incredible amount of times. You know, I lost my contract. Um, that year I failed a medical and, you know, a lot of people would have said at 24, that's the end. Um, I, got for, I got picked for Ireland at, at 98, in 1998. Um, I didn't get my first cap to 2005. So, I had seven years where I was kind of in and out of the squad and, and third choice hooker, but couldn't get a cap. So I had lots of opportunities to, I suppose, fine tune my my resilience um, uh, uh, methods. And when I was when I was playing professionally, and you know, now, and then coaching, obviously, it's, it's it's a difficult environment to be in. You're not gonna you're not gonna win as many games you lose if you're with a team who don't have the the resources. So uh, for me, it's a case of saying, okay, well, what am I good at? Um, and, you know, I think one of those has to be being able to deal with setbacks because uh, particularly in sales, that's, that's going to be a huge part. And how I deal with setbacks is I go to a, a you know, a pre-mortem, post-mortem uh, routine. So um, if I don't get what I need out of a, of a sales pitch or if I, if I miss out on a tender um, or, you know, I, yeah, or whatever happens in, in my kind of working life, um, you know, I go back to what I hopefully uh, and, and normally do is a pre-mortem. So before I have any any sales pitch or or, or strategy, I, I kind of work out well. You know, what's what's my super strengths here in terms of the product or or the financial package or 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 whatever our relationship with that client. Um, you know, how well do my do what I have meet? You know, the criteria they're looking for and. Um, you know, what questions could have I asked? What am I up against? What are the barriers, barriers to this happening? So that's my pre-mortem. And then I'll obviously have the event, which will be the, the pitch or the, or the series of pitches. Um, and, you know, the, the whole sales process that we all know. And then obviously if I'm, if I'm successful, great. But if I'm not successful, you know, I do a really strong post-mortem. Sorry, even if I am successful, I do a post-mortem because it's important to actually realize, you know, why you won it. 
and also did you leave anything behind um, and what you could do better uh, and again that's that's going back to your pre-mortem the event and then obviously your post-mortem so once I do those three things uh, I, I then say well look at I've actually learned something from that uh, and it could be in one of the, the three stages uh, and that's great now I'm, now I'm better so the next time that opportunity comes up you know I have a far better chance of of achieving it and uh, you know I, I'm actually working working with someone at the moment um, and he's uh, his name is Trevor Reagan he's uh, he's a learning specialist uh, he's got a very good podcast uh, and website called The Learner Lab but you know he used the analogy of you know a zoo tiger and a jungle tiger and you know they both have the same DNA they're both effectively the same animal um, but which do you think is in a better learning environment and you know 99% of people would say yeah the jungle tiger uh, but yet most of us most of us would prefer to be in the zoo a lot of the time when you know you're guaranteed shelter, you're guaranteed food uh, and safety. But you know the reality is to become better, we need to. We'll always be in the, in the zoo a little bit because you know um, we're always going to drift back into that, and certain things will fall into our lap um, at certain times, particularly in sales. But the reality is the the people are uh, that I the person I want to be is is have a really good mix of being in the jungle and being out there and, and having your wins um, and having your losses, but seeing the losses as not being fatal uh, and being part of, part of really growing and, um, I suppose, achieving something. I think that's uh, absolutely uh, true. And uh, I see the world as a series of experiences and learning experiences. And, uh, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. But you've actually said there that actually you um, – you should learn even when you do win because you know you could be you could have left something behind that might you know rear its head kind of in the future um john would you agree with that from your own experience i just think it's a great point particularly in this environment that a lot of people are probably holding out hope that we just want to get back to normal but that, that that's a very interesting um perspective bernard that that's really not what it's about it's it's to get to somewhere else and, and that's somewhere else is growth and evolution and, um, you know, new things, new insights, you know, the stuff that we've learned um, with this crisis going on, we, we get an opportunity to apply that now and not, not just to pay lip service to it and not just to write a tweet about it or not to, you know, make a comment on a, on, on a LinkedIn profile, to actually be in action to, you know, say and do the things that we want to i think to make us better and people around us better as well and to actually not want to get back to the way things were i, th yeah. I think that's a fantastic um i think that's a fantastic analogy that 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 you just uh, that, that you just shared with us there yeah well thank you but uh, you know there's another thing that i think maybe i'm a, I'm I'm only a year really in the corporate world, so. Um, but what I've seen, there's not enough um, work on actually learning from really high achievers. Uh, you know, and a lot of, uh, some of the salespeople that I've that I've dealt with, and, and some I'm trying to help. Um, you know, their natural reaction is to is to try and protect themselves, and you know, find reasons why they they haven't been hitting their numbers or not succeeding. Um, and I understand, you know, I understand there's probably, we all can find reasons why um, we're maybe not achieving at the level that, that we're expected to. But I, 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 what I did was, I was like, well, okay, you know, I'm 43 years of age. I'm starting this, um, 
this career later, 20 years later than most people, 23 years later than most people. Um, you know, I can't afford to have this, the stereotypical pathway, you know, where I, I spend 10 years learning my craft. I, I don't have time for that. So, um, you know, so what, what I did and what I see a lot of coaches doing, a lot of athletes doing is they go find, you know, the best in the world and um, they go ask them how they've achieved this. And it sounds so, it sounds so stupidly simple, but um, I don't think there's enough of that. And, you know, uh, so for me, for example, you know, we're a big company. We have 18,000 people, Refinitive. Um, and, you know, in the first two or three weeks, you know, I asked my, my, my sales manager, you know, who are the top performers in, in UKI in terms of consistently hitting their numbers and being part of CEO circle. And uh, for me, you know, they were my target list. They were the people I wanted to spend time with. They were the people I wanted to ask questions of because, one, they're, they're consistently um, achieving, but also they know our company and, and our clients best, even though they're working in different patches. And I, I think that saved me so much time, I think. Um, but, you know, I asked them how many new starters or how many people internally tap into that knowledge and experience. And it's actually rarer than you would believe. And, uh, um, you know, like from a coaching point of view, like the amount of probably emails and phone calls, you know, the likes of Eddie Jones, Joe Schmidt, Stuart Lancaster guests on a weekly basis from, from other coaches trying to have a coffee, trying to have a Zoom call, um, trying to go watch them coach um, would, be, would be phenomenal because we all see that as being a, a, you know, a great way of getting better at, what, at what, what we do. And from a sales point of view, for me, um, you know, I've learned a huge amount by just, by just basically, you know, I suppose, uh, shadowing for, for a day or two, um, but also you know, having a, a mentor list uh, internally who who've been there, done that, and have 20 years experience and kind of have, have seen what I haven't seen before and can give me some, some really good advice. And, and again, I, look, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Maybe everyone's doing it. But if there's some people who listen to podcasts who aren't doing it, I, I would definitely recommend it. And sometimes, you know, what I've got feedback on from some people was that, oh, that guy would be too busy. He won't want to share because that's his IP you know, he'd be, he'd be worried that I'll, 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 I'll catch up. Uh, the reality is I, I would say nine out of 10 people uh, will, will share and, and just enjoy actually helping others. And, and they actually find that maybe something that comes up over the course of that conversation might help them get better. So they're not worried about keeping it a secret. They know that they've fine-tuned it. It's theirs, their way of doing it. But definitely, I think you can learn from that. I couldn't agree more with you. And I think there you're, you're actually hiring a mentor to learn from the best. If you want to figure out how to learn a new skill, you find somebody who's mastered it and you copy the hell out of them. And I think the education system is designed to prevent us from copying. But actually, the reality is and, and to learn a good skill, you know, you should copy others. And I, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, I suppose um, as we wrap up here, Bernard, thank you for you know, sharing some absolutely fantastic insights with the audience um, I think it'll be of great benefit. I, I think what I'm really um, keen to know is having worked across uh, different cultures and been living in different countries, how would you describe the, the Irish sense of the crack? And what does that mean for you? And how have you adopted it in your career cross-culturally? Oh, look, I think it's been a huge help to me. Just, um, I suppose, that ability to engage with people, um, to build strong relationships uh, quite quickly. And it has... You know, even the language barrier hasn't stopped it. I mean, I think we've got a reputation for uh, for enjoying enjoying company and enjoying fun. And you know, 
whether it's been in Japan or or, or Manchester or um, you know or, or France and you know I've been across all parts of France and did my French pro license in, in Paris for twelve weeks with you know twenty five other French coaches. I, I I think that it's it's brilliant. It actually helps us. Um, I suppose make make friends and 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 contacts and ironically, you know, I have a coaching group now uh, that we set up in lockdown. That um, you know, that a lot of the people I've I've come across during my career, um, I'm back in touch with now. That I've kind of lost touch with uh, over the last year. So uh, it is it is unique. You know, it's 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 a brilliant. I think it's a brilliant starting point to to do business, particularly in account management and sales, when you can actually, I suppose, you know, build strong relationships with. Which are clients, um, you know, it's it's the foundations upon which your business will will develop, and and uh, it's yeah, it's been absolutely instrumental in in my uh, my success and my enjoyment of my of my career so far across rugby and and uh, and and corporate. Fantastic. Well, look, I really want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. It's been very insightful, greatly appreciated, and I look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Best of luck. Um, Thanks, and, uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, be be safe, man. Thanks. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.